Well, hello there. Welcome to the Speak Up podcast. This is Laura Camacho. And today we have a super special guest who is tuning in from Detroit. And his name is Sunil Gupta. And he's written a book that's extremely good. I've read it. I've taken copious notes. It's very actionable. It's called Backable. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about these are really advanced communication um, tips that you can use. Uh, of course, backable, you think of that in the context of pitching uh, for investors, which is, of course, important. But it, it, there's really so much we can use, even if we're not pitching to an audience. But for, before I get talk to you about Sunil, I want to tell you about someone else that appears in his book. So there was this woman named Danyanti Hingorani, and she is today a engineer, a woman engineer, but she grew up on the border between Pakistan and India. And I'm not a historical expert, but I do know that after uh, the British left the Indian continent and Pakistan and India were set up as countries that <clears throat> that the border between Pakistan and India was really not a place that you wanted to be. And she was living there, no electricity, no running water, really living in a poor situation. But she and her parents managed to get her to Oklahoma State University, where she graduated. I'm sure she had really good grades as an engineer. And she showed up at the door of Ford Motor Company. And you would think that they would be pretty excited to have her. And yet the hiring manager told her, and I quote, we don't have any female engineers here. And like, how do you even respond to that? And fortunately, Damianti had the the nerve and the and the guts to say, well, if you don't have any female engineers, why don't you hire me? And then we can get this ball rolling. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but she did. And this woman is Sunil's mother. So I know a lot of you are women engineers uh, or you know them or, uh, you know, we all we always like to hear stories of inspiring uh, heroes and heroines and, and people who aren't everyday names. We've all, we, you know, we love Oprah. She's got a great story, but we all kind of know that. I like to hear and really suss out stories of ordinary people who've done things that we haven't heard about and, and yet they have made a difference for, for us. So welcome to the podcast, Sunil. Oh, Laura, thanks so much for telling that story about mom. And it's great to be here. Well, uh, so audience, if you, if you don't know Sunil Gupta, he has written this book called Back, Backable. He had a startup called Rise that was purchased by One Medical. And, and a lot, he shares a lot of his journey of you know, taking his fabulous idea and trying to find people to back that idea and you know, what all he learned along the journey. He also teaches at Harvard University. He got a law degree along the way. And uh, he has a, a really good way of telling stories and, and he shares things that you haven't heard before. So I really appreciate that. So also, also he has a famous brother, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So if you've heard of him, he's a medical expert for CNN. 
So you have come from, was there pressure on you to be an <laughs> overachiever in your house? I, certainly, certainly. Uh, there was there was definitely pressure to achieve. I think more, more than that, though, was uh, the word impossible was never really allowed, uh, I think, inside the Gupta household. That's mainly because of my mom, you know, coming from... Uh, being a refugee who grew up with no water, n- no running water, no electricity to be able to come to the country and become Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. Uh, how could you, with a story like that as really your your background being in, in your DNA, sort of ever look at something and be like, well, I can't do that. It just wasn't, it wasn't allowed. You know, in the book, I talk about the game of now, this idea that most of us play the game of someday. Uh, but, but but I think that there are a few people out there that that play the game of now, and I think it's a game we can all play. Um, and the the three words that tend to hold people in the game of someday are I'm not ready. I'm not ready to apply for that job. I'm not ready to 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 you know apply for that leadership role or pull that idea into my company and motivate my team. Um, but if you look at backable people which is what I spend my time at, at Harvard and have spent my time in this book really studying. Backable people typically are not ready to do what they do. You know, Greta Thunberg, for example, 15-year-old from Sweden, was not ready to lead an environmental movement. She's 15 years old, uh, but she is now Time Magazine's youngest person of the year. Three students from design school weren't ready to start Airbnb. A hedge fund manager from Wall Street wasn't ready to start a book selling company that turned into Amazon, um, but they just kind of jump in and they figure it out along the way, which I think very much was what my mom, you know, said was the only way to do things. Yes, and I imagine your story about complaining about the dial-up Wi-Fi didn't bring a lot of sympathy from <laughs> no, her. <laughs> not, not at all. You had, a hard, you had to be really creative in coming up with those excuses with a mom like that. So I, I think that that's awesome. And it, it brings to me, you know, like thinking about be, what does it mean to be backable? And, and, and um, it's really like a way of looking at your situation as much as it is a set of skills, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the thing that I have found about backable people is that they seem to have this it quality that allows them to shine in these key moments. So whether that be you know, in front of your team, whether that be in front of a hiring manager, whether it be in front of an investor, whatever the situation might be, they tend to have this sort of I think almost ability to make us want to take a chance on them. But the, the, the stunning realization that really led me to write this book was that most of these people did not start out that way. They had to learn along the way. And so, you know, a producer took a chance on Lady Gaga, but that was after she was dumped by Def Jam Records. A district attorney took a chance on pulling Kamala Harris onto his team uh, even though she didn't really have an, you know, a, a track record as a prosecutor. And so oftentimes people are learning how to become backable, which tells us that this it quality really can be learned. It doesn't matter if you're not a celebrity or a CEO. This is something that you can use really in any context, which is just, uh, to me, when I, when, I, when I found that out, I thought to myself, wow, I, first of all, I need this. I've racked up so many rejections in my, in my career 
been turned down by so many investors, so many job opportunities, admissions committees. What can I do to make myself more backable? Yes, I think that's fabulous. And I, and, and, uh, I think at some point you say, you mentioned the example of, of, you know, being in a job early in your career where, and you felt like you were overqualified. And, um, and I think every, I just resonated so much with that feeling like, gosh, can't they see that I have so much more to give and why am I in this menial, you know, below me job and, and that we're waiting for this committee of great and actual uh, quality to come tap us on the shoulder and say, you know, Laura, Sunil, here, take this position. But it doesn't work that way. But why is it that we think it's going to work that way? Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think that a lot of us are waiting for opportunity to come to us. Yes, you know, yes, we, just, we, we are. Want. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think that, um, you know, we've been told, I think, and I think we've been taught that, Life is a meritocracy. And I think to a certain degree, obviously, it is very important to have those qualifications. I mean, you can't, you can't fake that. Um, but it is possible, as we know, to be highly qualified for a role or to present a very, very good idea that simply just does not get noticed. And I think we all, I think we all, I think most of us experience that. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I, I realized uh, early on in my career is that the opposite of success is not failure, it's boredom. And Very so when I'm sitting in my, in my cubicle, you know, like I was, I was filled with ideas. I was filled with unused creativity. And I was trying to put it out there. I'd go into meetings and I would, I would bring up ideas and, and I, you know, people around the room would sort of nod politely and then move on to the next agenda item, which I think we all kind of, I think we can all kind of relate to. And so how do you, how do you sort of give it that extra, uh, oomph? how do you give it that sort of extra, um, I think, attra attraction that really pulls people in? Because I think ultimately what makes us, you know, not bored uh, what what really I think engages us with the world, I think is our ideas. That's a great point. Yes, and and um, I also had I remember that you brought up a memory of of myself pitching a solution to an idea that everybody was like, oh, we have this problem, and I'm like, hey, there's this idea we could do this, and it just being greeted with silence. Yes. <laughs> it's like yes. not exactly encouragement. So that you know, if, if you're not prepared, if you're not trained, you can let that derail you. So I, we have to talk about this sentence in your book about uh, it's not charisma that convinces people, it's conviction. So the reason that jumped out at me because my doctoral dissertation was all about Chavez and I dealt with the construct of charisma mm. and pointed out his charisma as one of his, you know, one of the reasons he was so successful uh, in being esteemed by the people while simultaneously train wrecking his country. Mm. But he also had conviction, like he mm. had the conviction of it. So it really, I was like, do, do you become charismatic because you have conviction mm. or, or do you have, or is it the other way around? Tell, talk to me about those two qualities. Yeah. You know, when I started writing this book, I really thought that there was going to be a pattern of a communication style that I was going to find amongst backable people. 
They were going to have a certain way that they used eye contact and hand gestures, uh, pacing, all the things you might think about that you might learn at a Dale Carnegie course or a Toastmasters club. Um, but the more I dug in and the more that I studied these highly backable people, what I realized is that our communication styles were all over the map. You had some people who were much more extroverted and charismatic. You had certain people who were quiet and, and reserved, uh, but they were all highly backable people. And so what I, what I continued to sort of really kind of peel the layers back on is what is the common denominator here? What is the, what is the one thing that, that they seem to be doing in common? And what I finally arrived on is that it's not charisma that convinces people, it's conviction. People who are backable convince themselves first, and then they let that conviction shine through with whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. And the reason that, that that's important is because oftentimes when we come up with an idea, we're in a situation like you just brought up, Laura, we're in a room and someone says, hey, you know, we have this problem. You say, oh, oh, I got it. I got it. Now, there are certain situations where that has to happen. It's the moment. If you don't take advantage of the moment, then it's gone. But I would say in the vast majority of situations, that moment isn't necessarily the only opportunity we have to put our idea forth. And the reason that that's important is because if you share a half-baked idea, oftentimes you'll get a half-baked reaction. And what I found in my research is that most ideas inside companies are not actually killed inside the conference room. They're actually killed inside hallways. They're killed uh, uh, you know, around water coolers because what we're doing is we're sharing these ideas before we're actually ready to share them. And we're not getting the reaction that we want. We're getting sort of a, huh, you know, huh, that, that, that's maybe, you know, and, and, and that when we get that reaction, it, it's easy to get very deflated because here's the thing, new ideas are fragile. I mean, even the best ideas that go on to do amazing things start out in a very fragile state. And when you get that type of reaction, it's very easy to say, you know what, let me just put that in the drawer and, uh, and I'll pull it out again someday. Yeah, that is so true. And definitely the, I'm sure this, I don't remember what my fabulous solution was. I am sure it was half-baked because that's the way, <laughs> you know, that I, I'm a very uh, idea generating person, but, and you're absolutely right. The majority of them are uh, not even worth uh, they're not they're not worthwhile at the first go around. But even if if anybody's been in a brainstorming session, we all know that the first ideas are not the best ones. It takes you know massaging them and working with them. But yeah. how how would you what would what do you suggest? Like how do we know if our idea is ready for uh, you know a prime time? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that we we can we can put ourselves in the other person's shoes. And we can ask, what are the questions that I would have if a friend were just introducing this to me, or if this came up in a meeting, what, what are the, what are the first things that would come to mind? Um, and we can start to answer those questions ourselves. You know, one of the most simple tools that I think backable people use, and I've started to use it as myself is that I will, I will come up with not only what I love about the idea, but I'll come up with a list of objections to my idea. What are the reasons why someone would not like this idea? And I start to think about what the answers are to those objections. Now, that is different than the way that I used to behave and the way that I think most people behave, which is when we get excited about an idea, we, we talk about the possibilities. We talk about what's exciting, but we very rarely steer directly into the objections. 
And the reason it matters for steering into the objections is because if you don't steer into the objections, those things are already nagging at the person you're talking, talking to. And this can be the case if you're going into a job interview, or you're trying to convince a team, those objections are there. They're kind, of, they're kind of in the air and they're nagging at your audience. But if you don't bring them up, then what ends up happening is that they tend to tune out the stronger parts of your pitch or the stronger parts of your idea or your candidacy. So bringing those objections up directly. You know, I'll tell you a story. Reid Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn, used this steering into objections technique when he was pitching his company. But the way that he learned it was when he was early on working at Apple, and he was a pretty junior level employee, and he was looking to make a switch into the product management group. The problem was that it was Apple. A lot of people wanted to work in product management. And so when he approached James Isaacs, who was the head of the group, instead of saying, hey, look, I would, you know, I know I don't have all the skills, but I would love for you to take a chance on me and, and, and you know, have, you, have you bring me on. Instead, he said, look, I know I don't have the skills. I know I, I don't have the exact background you're looking for, but would you be willing to give me a shot at pulling together a document outlining my ideas and the product specifications behind those? Would you just be willing to take a look at it? And if you're impressed by my work, then maybe you give me a shot. No risk to you. And so James said, yes. And that's what, that would, that's what laid the foundation for, for Reed's career. So, uh, you know, steering into the objections yourself is how we build conviction. And, and again, I'll just say this. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have a perfect answer to those objections. Simply bringing those up yourself, being willing to talk about what might be the holes or the weaknesses of your idea or your candidacy earns you instant credibility in the room and you will, and you will earn their attention for the stronger parts of your pitch. Exactly. Because that's, that's in, you know, and that these are the situations that I'm coaching people in, like, you know, they are not the strongest candidate or they feel like they've been overlooked and, and it's, it's really successfully communicating requires you to get into their heads to come up with those nagging, the things that are distracting them from hearing the possibilities. And yes. those are the objections, which if we were all went, went to sales training and maybe we would know that, I don't know, but you know, I, I'm talking to people in finance and programming and chemistry and they, and, and me, I didn't have sales training either, but sometimes I think, Oh, I think I bet that, Salespeople are trained in that. Uh, it's uh, such a good. It's such a good yeah. point, Laura, that you just made. Though, is it, it, I just I think it's worth highlighting for anybody listening, which is that you know, ideas are are a function of creativity and persuasion. Yes, making your mark on the world requires both, and it's not necessary. I mean, it's not necessarily true that just because you're great at coming up with ideas, you're great at explaining them, and if you don't have both then oftentimes, you know, it's that uh, you, it, it, it ends up in unused creativity, it ends up in frustration. And you're like, why am I not able to create the influence that I want to create? Um, so I think it's such a good, such a good point. Well, th I, I, I think so. And, and I can tell from personal experience, it can lead to bitterness yeah. and thinking that either something is wrong with you, the person or, or, and, or these other people. And, and it's just doesn't have, it just doesn't have a, a good outcome. So yeah, definitely thinking about what are the possible objections and, and 
well, you called it steering into them. It doesn't mean, like you said, you have to have the answer to everything, but at least the fact that you've thought of it and bringing that up earlier. And of course, uh, in the book, you know, we, he gives a lot of help uh, and ideas uh, on how to do this specifically. So don't think it's just, oh, go figure out this thing. No, if you, uh, in chapter two, you will get specific help on that. But I want to talk about one of my favorite uh, nuggets in the book. It, and I guess it's my favorite because I've been teaching it also in different words, though, but it's the same idea of what, what Sunil calls an earned secret. So good. This is just like not as gold and platinum and diamond level <laughs> wisdom here it is so good. This, to share things that are not Googleable, and that applies even to a job interview. When somebody says, tell me about yourself, for heaven's sakes, do not tell them what is on your resume. They can Google that, right? So tell me about your not Googleable points <laughs> of view. Yeah, the first time that I was introduced to this idea of an earned secret was when I was in the, the waiting room waiting to meet with Brian Grazier who's an Oscar winning filmmaker. He's, he's got like over 130 Emmys, over 50 Oscars. Um, but he also invests in technology companies and he also runs large teams. And so inside the waiting room, inside his lobby, were people wanting to pitch him on film ideas, on company ideas and applying for jobs. And so when I went back to see him, I was there to write this book and to study him. And I said, I said look, Brian, if I was to go out to your waiting room right now, and give everybody out there one piece of advice, what would that be? And he thought about it for a moment. And he looks at me and he says, give me something that I can't find on Google. Give me something that is not Googleable." And that answer tended to be a pattern amongst decision makers that I talk to across all of these different industries is share with me an insight that you found personally through firsthand experience. That could have been through talking to customers, through attending shareholder meetings, through test driving and using the product yourself, but something that you were able to come up with that you didn't simply find through a few Google searches. Because look, that's that's typically the way that we prepare for meetings and interviews, right? As we go, we go, we do a little bit of research, we jot down a few questions. Um, but But it's very rare that we find people who sort of go above and beyond and do something, find an insight by doing something that most people wouldn't do. You know, I talked to, I talked to um, someone the other day who was applying for a job at a social media company. It's one of the hot new companies and she was very excited about the job, but there was one, one problem. She did not use the product. She, she had never used the product, but she really liked the job. She wanted the role. And, uh, and so what she did is she went out and she interviewed every single one of her daughter's friends, every single one of them. And ask them, what do you like about the product? What don't you like about the product? What do you what do you think is missing? What are the special moments in your experience? And then she did something really clever. She had them send her screenshots of these moments inside the experience. So now when she's in this interview, it happened over Zoom. This is just a couple of weeks ago. She literally had her phone up to the screen and she was able to sort of go through these screenshots and show this hiring manager all the research that she had collected. And he was so impressed that he actually had one of the user experience researchers join their Zoom 
on the spot so that he could see some of the moments of the experience that she had collected. She was adding instant value to the company. I mean, think about that. She went from somebody who hadn't used the product to somebody who was now helping the UX team figure out how to create an experience. And she simply did that by interviewing her daughter's friends. And so I think backable people tend to go out and find these earned secrets and they find them by putting themselves into the story. And it's really, you know, it's really, it doesn't have to be that hard. Um, you know, you can, you can just think to yourself, what would most people do before they go into this meeting and then go one step further than that? So that's so true. And it's so good. And, and, and actually there's, I'm seeing this theme even in our, limited conversation so far of going above and beyond. And yet I know the people in, that are hearing this, that are listening to this, they are all high performers. They, those are my people. They're all high performers, but they sometimes lack the courage or, or not even the courage, but like just not knowing what to do. And, and one example of, of being a high performer who who's, has a blind spot I did not learn until age 40 that when somebody offered you a job, you can actually negotiate. I thought it was like buying um, a sweater at <laughs> Belk. I mean, here's the sweater. Do you want it or not? You know, I, I didn't know that you could say, hey, well, how about let me have a pair of socks to go with that sweater? I did yeah. not know that until. And so this book gives you like those kinds of insights. Like if you just happen not to know Brian Grazier that well, then you can learn what he looks for uh, when he's going to back people or support their ideas. It's going above and beyond, but in a strategic way, in a creative way that really pushes your cause. And it's not beating down the person, you know, by please, please, please. How about now? How about now? How about now? Right. Not that, but just being strategic about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's Brian, it's Brian Grazier who sort of, you know, gave me this nugget, but, but what I realized is that it's just, this is what we're all looking for, you know, yes. in any type of competitive role, or any type of any type of situation where you're presenting an idea, and you know your company can only invest in a few ideas. You know there are going to be some that that get accepted and some don't. Or you're trying to convince and motivate your teams to really get behind you, but they only have a certain amount of bandwidth and attention and resources. So anytime that you are in a competitive situation, you're not just looking to check a box. You're you're, you're looking to make an impression. You're looking to be memorable. You know, the, 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 the Brian Grazier situation happened in Hollywood, but not, not too long after I was talking to an automotive executive in Michigan. Um, you know, he was a mid-level employee. He had an idea uh, and he had taken it to his team and the idea was rejected. And they said, why don't we, why don't we look at it again in about nine months? And so I sat down with him and I reviewed his PowerPoint deck and it was amazing yeah, it really was very, very thorough what he had come up with. It was a new idea for a new process on the assembly line. But the thing that was missing from his deck was the fact that he had personally gone to the assembly line and really spent time with all of the workers there observing the process himself. Because if you looked at the PowerPoint deck, you wouldn't know any of that. It had the facts, it had the figures, which were all important, but the story about how he arrived on the insight, how he had put himself in the story. That was all missing. And so we literally did not reorganize anything about his conclusion. We didn't add anything to his data, but I asked him to include that story, 
to start by how he found that, to include some of the anecdotes that he personally found when he was working on the assembly line, when he was there. And that completely changed the way that that pitch was received. Same idea, but different way of explaining it. And it got a very different result. It was greenlit immediately, and now he's running that project. That's a great story. And it shows how just a little twist uh, allows people to visualize the project in a totally different light. It's not that the idea itself even needed tweaking, which we can always tweak our concept that we're trying to sell. But in this case, it was really just a different way of sharing a a more human side that also showed how he had gone above and beyond to do his research. Um, The next topic that I want to ask you about, because I'm I'm just skipping through the things that my favorite parts of the book, otherwise we'd be here all afternoon. (laughs) Uh, Tell me, I love this idea about making your concept or your solution seem inevitable. And I'm going to tell one of the stories briefly that really resonated with me Uh, the story of how this woman noticed that her sister was spending $2,000 on a dress for a wedding. And this was not, you know, this was not in the Brian Grazier social set where you normally spend that kind of money on a dress. But one of the unintended consequences of social media is that, and, and I totally get it, you feel very conscious about what you're photographed, even if you're taking a selfie, those pictures on social media, and you feel more pressure to look more put together, and um, it costs a lot of money if you're spending uh, that kind of money on clothes, and so some, the founders of Rent the Runway found a way to capitalize on that, so we can rent the Oscar de la Renta, and rent the, the Ralph Lauren for that wedding or for that event or even for that photo shoot, it truly, the way it was, you did feel like, wow, if, if, if she doesn't create rent, rent the Runway, somebody is. And actually it's part of that whole rent economy. I think it has a different mm-hmm. name. And, and um, I really like how you brought in anthropology. So tell me, how, what was your process or what do you see that makes the book backable feel inevitable that if you didn't write this, somebody else would. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I'm I'm glad that point resonated with you because it was kind of like one of these ahas for me. Um, You know, I, I spent over 15 years working inside corporations and then I went off and started to run my own company and try to raise money for that. But what I found is that whenever I approached a new idea, when I was trying to get people excited about something, I would tend to talk about how an idea was new. Like, why is this new? And while that's important, I think what I found was even more important is to talk about why an idea is inevitable. Why is this ultimately going to happen? You know, it's, it's very tempting for people who, who, you know, consider themselves to be innovative, which I'm sure is so many of your listeners are. We tend to want to change the world. And that's a good thing. But when we're trying to get other people excited, we don't want to just talk about how we want to change the world. We also want to talk about how the world is changing and how our idea actually fits into that change. So, you know, let's just debunk one of the most common, obvious examples. We look at the iPhone. 
a lot of people sort of give Steve Jobs credit for the idea of like bringing the, the smartphone into the picture, right? But that wasn't necessarily true. We were already sort of headed in that direction. There were startups, in fact, a startup called Magic effectively had created the iPhone, a very, you know, very similar version to the iPhone. It just ran out of funding. The idea was sort of in the ether. It was out there. You had IBM and other companies that were actually starting to come up with their own versions. And so what Steve Jobs did is he accelerated us towards that vision, but he didn't necessarily create something new in that, in that, in, 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 or at least a, not, a, not an entirely brand new concept. And I think that's so important because getting back to the example that you just talked about with Rent the Runway, you know, what ended up happening was you had a founder who went home and she was, uh, she was visiting her family and she saw that her sister had just bought a $2,000 dress for a wedding. And she was like, gosh, I mean, that's really, really expensive. Like, why, why not reuse one of your other dresses? And the reason that her sister gave her ultimately was, look, I've already have pictures on Instagram or on social media with that other dress. I can't post the same photo twice. And that's when Jennifer Hyman, the, the, one of the founders of Rent the Runway, thought to herself, gosh, this is happening all the time. People don't want to wear the same outfit over and over again. That, that was true before, but it's especially true now with social. People are posting multiple times a week, if not multiple times a day, and they don't want those photos to feel stale. So this is a, an inevitable trend that's happening. And that inevitable trend is going to lead to people needing more wardrobe, but oftentimes you can't afford that. So what if you could rent it? And that's how she came up with the idea for Rent the Runway. Sam Schwartz, who's an executive inside Comcast, was coming up with the idea for Xfinity. But instead of going to his team, the leadership team, and saying, look, I've got a great idea for Xfinity, it's, an, it's a fully integrated solution, the way that that pitch deck looked is he said, look, this is already happening in Europe. It's already happening. And I have a pretty good sense that our competitors are starting to think about this as well. And we don't want to get left behind. And so this is an inevitable trend. I have an idea on how we can actually be a leader instead of a follower of this trend. So let's go. And that's ultimately how Xfinity was greenlit inside of Comcast. So again, just it's, it cannot be stated enough. Don't just talk about how an idea is new. Talk about how it is inevitable. Yes, and that has, that has two immediate effects in the brain of the listener is that, first of all, risk mitigation, because you feel like yes. you know, it's, it's not like some crazy, you know, even though renting clothes at first, it does sound like a little odd. Definitely. When I first heard of Airbnb, I was in the, oh, <laughs> why would you stay in somebody's house? In fact, sometimes I think people should pay me to test ideas. And if I think it's really weird, then they should go with it. <laughs> because I'm always like, why would, why would you want to take pictures with your phone? <laughs> yeah, Airbnb is a great example. If you look at, if you look at slide four of mm -hmm. Airbnb's pitch deck, it says there are 60, over 60,000 people right now sleeping on couches through a service called Couchsurfing. There are over 100,000 temporary housing listings on Craigslist, right? And the message to the investor was, look, we're not coming up with a new idea here. This is already happening and it's growing. And so you're not investing in a new idea. You're investing in an inevitable idea. Um, and I, I love your point, Laura, about risk mitigation because it's such an important one. It's not, it's you know, the science, the science has been very definitive on this. I mean, you look at Daniel Kahneman and the research that he did around loss aversion. He won a, a Nobel Prize for it, which, which basically tells us that the, the, the fear of getting something wrong 
is twice as powerful than the pleasure of getting something right. And so we as human beings tend to be risk averse when it comes to decision making. And, that, and that's true even for innovative people, people who are known to be re- betting on risky ideas. I mean, I spent about a year inside a venture capital firm that was you know, one of the first investors in Airbnb and Google and, and, and Facebook and, and Amazon. Um, but one of the investors there told me, look, if I say no to 100% of the ideas that I hear, I will be right 99% of the time. So that's wow. the mindset. Yeah. That's the mindset of somebody that you are trying to get to say yes And the way to do that is, again, not just by talking about how your idea is new, but how it is inevitable. Because if someone feels that your idea is inevitable, then no one wants to miss the boat. Exactly. You you incite FOMO. And yet, intuitively, that's the the opposite of what somebody with a new idea gravitates toward. Because we're all about, oh my God, it's so new and exciting, and it's going to do this and that and the other, instead of showing how it's part of this. Uh, in inevitability that if you don't get on with me, somebody else is going to take advantage of this. I want to talk, we're going to, we have time at least for one more discussion point. That to me, what uh, was the one that I, it was a little bit, huh, it took me a while to get it. Whereas some of the other ones, I was instantly like, yes, yes, yes. But flipping outsiders to insiders. Yeah. So tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I think about often now is is uh, uh, what what researchers call the IKEA effect. The IKEA effect, and the IKEA effect basically tells us that we value something that we build up to five times more than something that we simply buy because we help build it. And so there are a lot of people out there that have poorly made futons that they'll never get rid of because they built it with their own hands. And that is something that's important for us to keep in mind, whether we're in our living room, talking to friends and family, or whether we're, whether we're in a conference room, pitching ideas or pitching ourselves. Um, because you know, often what we're trying to do or the mistake that we can sometimes make is when we try to sell someone a pre-assembled piece of furniture, the idea that has every single detail figured out, rather than asking people to be part of our own creative process, right? And, and, you know, you go, you go into a, a, uh, a pitch meeting where you have an idea and you're trying to get your team really excited and you're like, I have exact, I, I'll tell you exactly how this works. I'm going to give you this bulletproof plan. Instead of saying, you know, there are a couple of things here that I really want to get your advice on. Like you, Laura, you, you're, you're a communications expert. We're trying to figure out how to make this something that customers will get instantaneously. Let's get your input on that. I would love that because that's one thing that I'm thinking about that I don't have figured out. And so what's happening is that you and I are now coming together to build this piece of furniture together rather than me trying to sell you a piece of furniture. I mean, it, it works with family as well, Laura. I mean, you know, in 2016, I was living in San Francisco and the presidential election happened and I was really inspired and motivated to move back to Michigan and run for office in my hometown. Uh, I really wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to see if I could flip things back from the way that they have flipped in 2016. And, and, uh, and I wanted my wife and I have, I have two, I have two daughters and they were both very young at that time. And I, I ran this idea by my wife and I was like, so excited about it. I said, look, you know, 
I feel really inspired to do this. Let's move to Michigan. And she looked at me and she's like, absolutely not. I'm not moving back to Michigan. You know, we have a, we have a nice life here and, and, you know, we have a couple of kids and, you know, our older ones in school, like I'm not moving to Michigan. And so we would have this back and forth over the next few months where I kept saying, look, I really want to do this. And she would say, no, I really don't. And what I realized is that I was just, I was trying to sell her a piece of furniture. I was trying to sell her a pre-made piece of furniture. And what we arrived on together was a plan. And the plan was that we would move to Michigan and I was going to run for office. And if I, if I won my election, then we would stay in Michigan. But if I lost my election, the next location was her choice and her choice alone. No questions asked. She got to pick where we went. We moved back to the West Coast, moved to the East Coast where her family is. And it didn't make it perfect for her. It's not like that all of a sudden you know, made her want to move to Michigan at the time. But what it did do is it, it, it made us, we, we were building a piece of furniture together as opposed to me trying to sell her something. So flipping outsiders to insiders is about taking people who are on the outside of your idea or the outside of you as a candidate for a job and making them invested in it because they feel like they're building it too. Yeah, I love it. It makes me think of man's search for meaning. Like it's just more meaningful. And, and I say that as the owner of two needlepoint pillows that I put together that are not exactly priceless works of art, but I'm not letting go of them because yeah. I made them. They're <laughs> I, yours. They're my creation in a way, even though it's kind of like paint by numbers, but uh, it, it, it is something that I put labor into. And I think when we do working with our hands or definitely is a great way to feel some set level of satisfaction you don't get otherwise, but even if you're just contributing ideas, you do feel more invested in the success of that idea. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so what that means for us very practically is before you walk into a room and be a job interview or be, you know, you're inside a company and you're trying to get somebody excited about something like go in with at least one thing, at least one thing that you're going to be asking them for, for their advice on. Right. And it's got to be specific. It's, it's got to be, it's got to be something that really ties into their background. You've, you've gone, done the research and you've said, Hey, look, I know you worked on this in the past. And that's going to be one thing that we're going to have to face with this idea. And that's part of the reason that I'm here is not just to share this idea with you, but to get your advice on, you know, what would you, how would you think about this? It, it really is. I mean, I can't, I can't stress enough how this has been a part, I think of every movement of every new organization, of every new startup has started in this way where a founder or somebody who came up with that, again, fragile idea started going to these outsiders and started to get their advice and started to pull them in. I mean, you look at the civil rights movement and the way that Martin Luther King started to really gain steam. That's a big part of what he did in the early days was he was going to other people and he was asking them for their advice. He was saying, look, what would you do? How would you do this? And those people ended up becoming some of the early leaders of the movement, which really helped it gain traction. That is so cool. That, that's a great note to, to bring this to a close. So I want everybody to know that we've only touched a very small part of what all is in this book. And I have my desk is covered with notes and highlights and questions that we didn't get to. Um, but I would like uh, to, for you to share a couple of things um, I would like for you to tell us like, like what would be like the one thing that you want to share with this audience 
um, about getting involved maybe, because I don't know if I, I don't, I think I mentioned that you ran for Congress from Michigan. Uh, so, so you really put your, you know, skin in the game, which I totally believe in. Uh, but what, what would you like, what would be your message to the audience to, yeah, to bring yeah. this to a close? Yeah, you know, I, I really began believing that this book was backable, was a business skill. And I ended the book knowing that it is a life skill. It, 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 we, unused creativity is something that isn't just, you know, something that we want to bring to our businesses, but we want to bring to our lives. Like we're here to make an impact. I think that as I survey my students or I, I, the people that I coach, you know, it, it really does come back to that, right? What separates us from machines, from robots as human beings is our imagination. And we want to bring that into the world. And so, you know, what I would say is, is what we talked about in the beginning. I would, I would bring it all the way full circle back to my mom's story, which is that the opposite of success is not failure. It is boredom. And even if you fail, even if you get rejected the way that I have many, many times, there are, is always another room. And there is always another path. And I'll tell you a very, very quick story, which is that you know the company that I started, which was called Rise, which eventually I got funded, and eventually you know we 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 ended up selling. When I sold the company, I really signed the paperwork with mixed feelings, because it was a pretty good deal for our investors, a pretty good deal for our team. But you know, I I really sort of felt like we could have been more. You know, I, I wanted to take it. I wanted to take it the distance, and it and it never really got there. And um, a few months after we ended up selling the company, I was at a conference and up on stage was the founder of another healthcare company. And this healthcare company had become much, much bigger than my company rise. And so, you know, he was up on stage and I felt that little pang of, of like envy where I was like, oh, gosh, I wish I was up on stage. I wish I was that person. Right. Uh, but what was really interesting was that during Q and a, someone in the audience asked him, how did you get inspired to start your company? It was a mental health startup. And he thought about it for a moment. And he said, you know, one of the companies that really inspired me was a company called Rise. And he didn't know that I was sitting in the audience. But, you know, it just made me realize that, you know, even if you don't reach your intended destination, when you put yourself out there, Simply by doing that, you touch and you teach people along the way. And when we think about how to have our impact on the world, it's not just through success. It's, it's literally just through taking the ideas that are inside your head and finding a way to share them with the world. Uh. That was so beautiful. I cannot possibly add to that. Do not want to gild the lily. Thank you so much. This has been Sunil Gupta. The book is backable. I strongly suggest you go on, pre-order it, pre-order it now, because then you don't have to worry about remembering to. It's truly a worthwhile, valuable read, as you can tell from this interview. Have a great day, guys. I will see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. 